Hello everyone, this is Tom Uren. I'm here with the Gruck for another Between Two Nerds discussion. G'day Gruck. G'day Tom. Today's episode is brought to you by Airlock Digital. Airlock Digital makes an allow listing solution that keeps all the bad stuff from running on your network. So today we thought we'd look at the trade-offs between intelligence gathering and effects and how that might change as circumstances change. So moving from peacetime through to perhaps the beginning of a conflict. Heightened tensions, higher levels of competition between states to open conflict. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a really interesting topic. I mean, the way I'd put it is your limited resource is access. You have access, you need to decide, am I going to use this access for collection or am I going to do something more active? So making that decision is entirely based on circumstances. So, right. so there'll be a bunch of things that would change that calculus. Yeah, well, let's start in peacetime. So the way I kind of think about effects operation is that they're designed to cause some sort of outcome or encourage some sort of outcome that you're after. And so one definition of offensive cyber operations is that they disrupt, uh, damage, whatever. I guess the effects is a bit broader than that in that maybe you just want... I would go with to actively shape the environment to seek an outcome that you want. So like to shape the environment with the intent of seeking a particular outcome as opposed to intelligence, which is where you do not shape the environment. You just collect passively, we could say. Um, Though it's not necessarily passive. I think that's the dichotomy that we're looking at. It's the the, the active manipulation of something versus not that. Yeah. So the first thing I thought of when I was thinking about effects in peacetime is trying to manipulate small groups that mm-hmm. are causing you pain. So so from a state point of view, that might be something like organized crime or a terrorist group, mm-hmm. perhaps even another state's... Um, Teams, right? Yeah. Particularly if they're using commercial capabilities. Yeah. It's probably a lot easier to disrupt a five-man company that's providing cyber services to the state than it is to disrupt the state's intelligence service. Yeah, and so the UK's National Cyber Force is the organization that's spoken most publicly about that, and they've talked about essentially trying to manipulate organized crime. (laughs) And and I guess you could think of things like there'd be a dual intelligence gathering mission about, (laughs) say, a cartel or organized crime or whatever, but also trying to manipulate them in a way that they make themselves susceptible to traditional law enforcement. So perhaps right. encourage them to visit somewhere or, um, you know, whatever. So I think that's right. seemed to me fairly logical. Yeah, like I agree. It makes sense to be doing effects operations during peacetime against sort of smaller entities that you can manipulate invisibly. You can, you can yeah. change their behavior and stuff. And I think that that's possible because the cost of doing that is not very long term. What I mean by that is that when you use your like your entire toolkit to access and disrupt group A, group B is not going to learn all of what you've done and how to uh, mitigate that because there's unlikely to be a high level of monitoring and then collections and lessons learned from that that gets disseminated. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess a, a small, unsophisticated 
target. And, and it seems like a, a kind of small risk, small return. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess disrupting a cartel organized crime is not a small thing, but it is compared to a state, a state adversary. Right. And, and so what I'm getting at is that it's repeatable. Yep. Right. Like what you, what you do against group A, you can do against group B, C, D, etc. Um, for quite a while until they wise up. Whereas against a larger, more sophisticated opponent, you, you're unlikely to disrupt the entire target. You'll disrupt a part of it just because of the, like the size, I guess. And then the rest of it will learn from what's happened. It's unlikely you can use the exact same approach a second time. Right. So it seems like we both agree that trying to manipulate a small non-state group that is being a pain, mm-hmm. an annoyance or causing harm is absolutely worthwhile in peacetime. Do you think that you, countries would try and manipulate other countries? I guess it depends on the country, maybe. Right. So I think that they would, but I here's the interesting thing. I think what's holding back a lot of countries that would have the capability is that they don't have a strategic theory of how to do it. And then they don't have a group that would be tasked with implementing that theory and executing it. So like Russia has a strategic theory of how they manipulate things and spy large masses of people are influenced by the news media that they receive. So we will get information out there that will influence all of these people and then they will do what we want them to do as a mass group. That's very good for certain things, but it's it's not quite the same as like disrupting a small group of people by manipulating their emails or, or right, something. Yeah. Right. To me, disinformation feels like a different game than effects in that it's large scale mm. and blunt, whereas the right. effects game, my, my thinking about it is it's meant to be very precise and targeted. Right. But what I'm, what I'm getting at is that in terms of like affecting people, that's their strategic vision of how it works. Yep. In terms of everything else, they kind of go to wipers. Like their theory of how to do information conflict is disinformation and destructive attacks. That seems to kind of be it. So moving on from peacetime, where I guess mm-hmm. the summary is trying to impact small non-state targets seems like 100% uh-huh. a thing that you would do and then perhaps you might try and manipulate people in other governments maybe yeah so what about as you're preparing for conflict right so this is interesting because i think let's let's say not getting into a conflict let's just say heightened tensions which could go sort of either way right your incentives kind of change at that point right i, I think you you start wanting to do effects for influence operations so you might want to signal that you're really serious about this, that you're not just saber-rattling and talking a big game. So you might feel that using a cyber capability to do something sort of big and, and spectacular and visual and splashy would help you send that signal. Like, we're serious about this. You have to back off, otherwise we will escalate. Right. I guess I was thinking of examples where Iran has been subject to several... Mm-hmm cyber, I guess you'd call them attacks, that have been disruptive, that right. in the huge scheme of things don't amount to much, but mm-hmm. cause significant disruption to either lots of people for a short time or, right, right. or one place where they drop molten steel all over the floor. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so that kind of thing. So like that kind of thing, if you are a very sophisticated actor and you're going against a less sophisticated state, you're probably willing to do effects operations on a large scale because you know you can repeat them fairly easily. You're not going to be damaging future operations by anything you do now, particularly because the tempo is quite low. Right. Yeah. So I guess your capacity to do things is both the people and the skills you have, but also the ability to retain access, like you said. Right. That seems to be a thing you could still have people and the skills, but if you don't have the right way to get access, they're kind of useless at that point. Right. Yeah. It's, a, it's sort of a, a so what. So I, I think that's actually a huge part of the, the calculations that have to go into what to do with the access you have, because using it for effects risks burning it more than using it for intelligence. And when you get discovered, your chance of getting access again decreases some amount, right? Depending on the sophistication of the target and uh, you know how you got yep. caught, etc., etc. Et I mean, when you're looking at this stuff, you probably need to take worst case scenarios into account as a, right, yeah. if we do this, would the ODA that we use get discovered? And if it does get discovered, would we n have no other possible way of accessing them at all? Right. right. And, you know, if that's the case, do we really want to hack their email and send poop emojis to everyone? It's <laughs> <laughs> like the thing that we do. Yeah. So just to be explicit, the reason that effects is riskier is because, I mean, the intent is to have an effect that I guess often in these cases is intended to be seen. So presumably people will do some sort of incident response, whereas if you're doing intelligence right, you just never get caught. Right. Unless you get unlucky or sloppy or whatever. But other than luck, like those are things that you can control. Whereas, you know, obviously with an effect, what you're you're trying to get their attention in some way. Yeah. You're trying to you're trying to change the environment to make them behave in a certain way and that change could be detectable and therefore lead to yeah, instant response, discovery. Yeah, so uh, I guess capability, etc. Uh, mm -hmm. The sort of rising tensions point there's more to be gained by causing mm -hmm. an effect. So maybe the risk appetite is higher because potentially right. you could ward off real conflict. Right, right. That is fair. So for example, one thing you might want to do is you might want to send like a personal SMS to the personal phone of every top ranking general saying, you know, you don't want to go down this route. You know, you've got a wife, you've got lovely kids, your home is really nice at this GPS coordinates. You're like, you don't want to do this. We don't want to do this. Let's yep. call the whole thing off. Like that is clearly revealing a lot of capabilities, but it might be worth it if you can dissuade some generals from participating. I was just thinking about, and this isn't quite exactly the same, but prior to the beginning of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, there was yeah. quite a lot of intelligence released that was clearly intended to right. stop the invasion happening. Disrupt, yeah, it was disrupting um, plans. Yeah, so not exactly an effects operation, but still I think it illustrates the risk-reward. You know, they're prepared <laughs> to risk capabilities. Now, having said that, a lot of that intelligence, I did not see how it would reveal sources and methods. <laughs> but anyway. Right. Yeah, e even intelligence collection could lead to loss of access depending on how that intelligence is used. Yeah. 
Yep. But that's, I think, a different matter from the, you know, how do you spend your access points? Like you've got, you have your access. Are you going to use it to buy uh, poop emoji emails? Use it to buy some sort of uh, disruption effect that's going to last 24 or 48 hours or, or more? Or are you going to use it to keep seeing what's going on and trying to learn their intent and their plans and all this other stuff? And it's- yeah, yeah. So there's a couple of examples, I guess, of large-scale, potentially disruptive-type attacks. And I guess one of them was the Russian Biosat disruption. And mm-hmm. I think there was also attempted disruption of telco networks at the same time. Another example that's probably actually a better one is not Petya. It's just that yep. it wasn't launched at the same time as an actual invasion. That seems right, like right. if it had been done at that time, that would have been something really significant. It was just yes, drastically mistimed. <laughs> <laughs> right. What you do depends very much on the circumstances that you're in. And one of the things that we haven't mentioned is that a lot of these decisions are actually not made by the cyber people themselves. Right. It's very much like, here are things we could do, but this is what it would cost us. So do you want us to do this or not? Like it, you have to decide if it's worth damaging our future capabilities in exchange for sending a message now. Right. Like yeah. that, that's, a, that's a political decision, not a... Right, yeah. And I guess NotPetya is an example of where <laughs> it seems like in retrospect, it looks like a mistake to have launched it way back then. Right. So that's at the moment of invasion. It seems like there's the potential to have some sort of significant effect that you probably prepared for for quite a long time. I don't think right. that they knocked up the Viasat thing in just... Over the weekend. No, they must have had some warning. But after the actual moment, it seems that there's less space for significant effects to take place just because of the nature of the, the lead time and how the, the situation is quite fluid. Yeah, and I, so I think there's a, a few things that go on. Is one of them is like, so during peacetime, your risk appetite is going to be low. And as tensions rise, your appetite gets higher because the rewards for averting disaster are much higher. So you're willing to do that. But then once disaster strikes anyway, I think your risk appetite it maybe doesn't go down to baseline, but it goes down lower than it was before because... Is it, does, does your risk appetite really change or does it, is it the, just what you can do? I think there's a bunch of things, right? So one of them is, as you've pointed out, is that cyber operations, particularly big ones, need a lot of people, a lot of resources, and particularly a lot of lead time to prepare, right? They might execute in a, you know, a few seconds or a few minutes, but it, it's going to be months to get to that point. Mm-hmm. Testing and developing software and acquiring access and making sure that it's repeatable and like all this other stuff. And then once you're ready to go, okay, you can do it. And during the preparation for a war, you probably have that lead time. If you need a few months of prep time, that's okay. But during the actual conflict, if you say, you know, I'd love to support you with an operation, but I need six months of no one's going to do anything, but... <laughs> Yeah, work work on this operation. That's probably not going to get greenlighted. So, like, that's one of the things is you don't necessarily have the resources and the time anymore. Yep. But I think also because you don't have the luxury of time to prepare for things, 
you also have to look at the fact time is not on your side overall. Like it, this is going to take a while. And so you need to be careful about what you're doing because everything you do now has an impact on your future capabilities. So you're going to be looking at if we have access to like the, the, their Ministry of Defense, do we want to do an effects operation of some sort to influence them now? And then we might never get access to them again. Or do we want to keep access to them and learn what's going on? Like what is more valuable overall? And I think particularly because you're looking at the long term of like, if we lose access, that could be catastrophic, even if it's only for a month or two. Whereas during peacetime, it's like, hey, you know, like if we're not in them, you know, in June, we could be back in them by July or August. You know, it's not a huge deal that we lose a month. Yeah, of- yeah. So I, I guess the relative importance of continuous intelligence collection is higher. Mm-hmm. So even though maybe your risk appetite is higher, there's more to lose if you get caught. Yeah, yeah, I I think that's true. And I think that what's interesting about this is that we're talking about effects in the sort of like generic do an effect of some sort and whether it's worth it or not. But I think it's worth looking at, you know, how you would do effects as well, because that's part of your calculation of like if, like we've got this MOD access and we're going to, you know, wipe all of their computers so that they won't be able to do anything for the next at least one day, maybe the week. If you do that at a time when a, an operation gets launched elsewhere, like a, a huge push or something like that, and having the MOD of the adversary disrupted and unable to coordinate is going to give a huge boost to your war effort on the front, that might be worth doing it. Like You might say, we're willing to trade intelligence collection for the huge strategic boost it's going to give yeah. our offensive. That only makes sense if those effects are tied into something else as enablers. If you have that MOD access and you wipe the computers for a week in like the middle of nothing, yeah, it's going to disrupt them, but it's not benefiting you in any tangible way that you can take advantage of. Yeah, so we, we actually have, I guess, recent data about how at least Russian operations have changed over the course of the war there. Yeah, the most recent report, uh, I know you wrote about it, the CERT H1 2023. Yes, that's right. Which, you know, yep. uh, absolutely excellent. I loved it. It points out a number of a number of interesting things that have happened with Russian cyber. You know, what we in the biz would call strategic adaptation. So they've switched to espionage quite heavily. And I think there's two possible explanations for this. One is that the effects operations that they were doing over the winter were part of a winter campaign of disruption that intended to make life difficult during the hard months. And it doesn't make sense during spring, for example. So they would not necessarily be doing that operation anyway. And so they might start doing effects again when the winter starts. However, there has been a a real switch to espionage, that there's a a much stronger focus on collection because the targets that they're attacking are more resilient and detect sooner, respond quicker, etc. The Russians now are doing, within the uh, the first 30 minutes of gaining access, they collect absolutely everything that they can, pull it off, and then after they've done that, they start trying to expand access. Yeah, I think the report... So they'll collect first. Yeah, the report said mm-hmm. sometimes tens of thousands of documents in the first 
half hour. It's like, uh, yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that is moving quickly. So yeah, the way that the operators changed, the things that they emphasize has changed, and I think one of the other things that was that was brought up is that the the size of the force has changed as well. Uh, last year, it was doing some number n attacks per week, and that's doubled this year. Right. Right. The way that you can double cyber operations is you sort of double headcount because right. these are like these are hands-on keyboard sort of things. It's not, you know. Yeah, I thought it was interesting in that report how it talked about the capacity to conduct cyber operations and it tried to, mm-hmm. I think it came down to something like one per month. Does that sound familiar? Yes, yes, yes. So they broke out each sort of team that was operating. So not just the GRU overall, but it'd be like the GRU has this number of teams and each team is tracked individually. And so they, they have this whole matrix of number of attacks per week by team yeah. for like the, the first six months. And yeah, it's one. <laughs> yeah. Like that's... Um, and I was really interested in that, but I also didn't know what to make of it because what, what do you define as an attack and how big is a team and yeah. all that kind of stuff. But I thought it was... Um, I guess something I'd like to know more about. The other interesting thing in that report is that they spoke about the Russians revisiting the same targets over and over again. Yeah, so I, they attributed that to sort of familiarity. Like, we've we've been here, like, we can go here again. Like, we know the, the network layout, we know who the people are, we sort of know how they choose their passwords, et cetera, et cetera. And so that they would sort of repeat this stuff because they were familiar and it would be um, sort of easier to to operate in the familiar environment again and again. I'm not sure about that myself. So I don't know the, the actual victimology. Yep. But to me, it sounds like the tasking hasn't changed. These guys are tasked with, you need to gain access to this company and tell us what's going on. And you get caught and like the tasking is still yeah, you need to right. get. Yeah, yeah that was know. exactly my thought as well. You know, when you're in a war, there's things you really want to know, and there's just a limited amount of places where you could plausibly get that. So you go right. revisit those places again and again. Yeah. One of the other super interesting things in that report was how the Russians were using cyber to do battle damage assessment. Mm. So uh, battle uh, like BDA, battle damage assessment, is when you look at an area that you've hit to see, did we hit the target we meant to hit? Yep. Uh, is it destroyed, right? Like, do we need to do it again? Is it 50% taken down, et cetera? Like you, you do an attack and you need to know how effective that was in case you need to redo it or just for future reference to say like one missile is enough for this size target. But that's kind of hard to do, for example, if you are doing indirect fire. So you, you shoot a missile 600 kilometers and blow a, a power substation. Right, yeah. Now, did you hit that power substation? Well, you can send a satellite overhead and try and get a picture of it when the window's available and there's no clouds in the sky and like yeah. all these other things. Or you could hack the fire department and see if they got called out to deal with a fire at the power substation. <laughs> right, yep. Yeah, and it, it, it seems like the Russians are doing that so I think there's a few ways that they could be doing it. So there's a central ministry of emergency services. So you could hack that and just collect all of the reports in one central location. Yeah. You could hack the 
individual emergency services things and sort of collect their reports for a region. Or you could hack the victim to see what they say. And I think that hacking the victim is the least efficient yep. and least reliable. If you blow up the one office that they have, <laughs> by, then... By definition, <laughs> makes it harder to hack. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, so we know that they did this with the IPTV in coffee kiosks at railroad stations where they would, they would hack the IP cameras right, yep. and use that to monitor the train so that they could look at the aid that was coming in. Yeah, the, Ru- the Russians did this in Ukraine. Yeah, so, th- so I think they would, they would probably do that as well. Right. Like if you want to see, did I blow up the building on this side of the street or that side of the street, having visual combination from a camera is probably sufficient. And it's probably a lot easier to break into someone's personal little surveillance camera. Yeah, so overall, I, I thought those things were interesting as well. But overall, the report seemed to signal a shift away from trying to cause effects and towards intelligence gathering, which kind of makes sense, I guess, in the framework we've been talking about. Absolutely. So uh, to me, um, and you know, this is the thing I'm, I'm doing quite a bit of research on, the value of effects is ignoring this non-state disruption of a, a small group thing. The value of effects is sort of how does it enable and help? Like they're, they, they augment, they enable, they help, yep. they make it possible to do other things. And so their utility is sort of enablers, right? They're a supporting role. And also they require a lot of lead time. You can't do effective effects on, on very short notice. You, there's just so much you can do. And so I think the utility and value of effects is somewhat limited because they're in a supporting role. But the cost is a lot higher because any uh, future intelligence that you're losing is quite valuable. Right, right. The intelligence opportunity cost. Right. It's very high. And so when you're making those decisions, I think a lot of the time you're going to err on the cautious, you know, let's let's just keep collecting. And so in a way, this is because the things that you can support with cyber effects tend to be, for example, something really big, right? Like if you disrupt the satellite communications of your adversary, they're going to notice, but that's going to only buy you so much time and you need to take, you need to take advantage of it in some way. And if you can't, then it's not worth. <laughs> well, well uh, we started losing. off by talking about <laughs> how the trade-offs between intelligence and effects change in different circumstances. Right. So it seems like at least we've managed to convince ourselves that, that that's right. They do change. That and does that happen. Mostly <laughs> what we see kind of matches, um, that, that sort of conceptual framework actually matches what we've seen in practice so far. Right. I just want to point out that I gave a keynote presentation at B-Sides Tallinn in... I think October or August of 2022. Mm-hmm. And part of it was a section which said, of all the things that you can do with cyber during wartime, effects are the least useful compared to intelligence collection or information operations. And so when you're deciding what to do, you're probably going to decide to just do intelligence collection. And I'm, I'm very pleased that that prediction has now been sort of borne out by the actual, uh, like the data of what <laughs> adversaries are right. doing. Yep during an actual war. Thanks a lot, Greg. Thanks a lot, Tom. Mm-hmm.